This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. I'm Vanessa Sockett, and joining me today is Roland Mossbergen, the founder of the Practical Diversity and Inclusion Online Resource and part of Strategic Leadership and Data Management for the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. Roland, I think the first time I met you was in a Slack channel and you were sharing some of your insights on diversity, equity, inclusion. And it really caught my attention because you have these insights that I just had never heard before. And I'm really looking forward to chatting with you today. So first, welcome to RSC Stories. Thanks, Vanessa. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with a quote, and it's from you, if, if that's all right, because... <laughs> I think it sets us up to learn a little more about your background and life experience that has led you to become such a powerful advocate for DEI. You said, diversity and inclusion is not my job, nor is it a hobby or a passion. It is a coping mechanism to take back some control in a system that is inherently out of my control. So maybe to start, do you wanna unwrap that for us and tell us a little bit about your background? I didn't think anyone would actually read that one. I think it's actually uh, very accurate for me because a lot of people will say, oh, look, you know, why don't you make a career out of it? Or maybe you should do this or you should do that. But it's a combination of this idea that I want to be able to do something. And I think if you go back to from a research software engineer, we're research software engineers because I think from the people that I've talked to, we want to transcend just doing software engineering. We want to have some sort of purpose. You make certain sacrifices to be a research software engineer and you don't necessarily do it for the fame, for the magazine covers, for the money. You're doing it because it's almost like a calling. And more and more I've been realizing that I can't not do it. I just have this compulsion. And I remember a friend of mine was wanting to be a writer and he's sort of talking to me about things and saying, you know, they're talking about you have to sort of write every day. And when I was sort of looking into that like a while ago, because I was just trying to help him out. And I saw this comment that says like, as a writer, you know, you're a writer when you just can't stop writing. You can't stop creating content. You can't stop, you know, you're a storyteller. And when I sort of think, realized that I, I always had this compulsion to provide these different type of insights that I saw based on my own experiences, I realized that I need to do it a little bit more. And I, but I also realized it was a coping mechanism for all the times where I didn't have a voice and people, you know, just being ignored or pushed aside or the biggest surprise I think some people have when I talk about this is that in some cases it's still around this idea of blatant discrimination that people can easily see that they're accustomed to understanding. It's actually this subtle discrimination, which usually more than anything just involves ignoring the people who are being discriminated. And it's actually such a powerful tool that when you start showing the stories that have actually been documented that people have just ignored, people get really surprised. They go, oh, I didn't know that. And so what I found in this space around this coping mechanism is to try and highlight that, hey, being ignored is actually a huge challenge for people. 
And that was kind of my coping mechanism because I can sort of advocate for other people, but I can't necessarily advocate for myself. So I find that really interesting. And so I find myself in this really interesting space. And that brings up this idea that I've thought about a lot of the, the idea of self-compassion, that if a friend came up to me, someone that was struggling with something and they said, oh, I had a really bad day, I'm struggling with this, I would be so supportive and I'd have advice for them, but it's so hard to turn that around on yourself. And so I find that it's helpful almost to look at myself as another person when, when I'm down or when I'm struggling with something and to give myself advice as if I'm another person. Otherwise, I just wouldn't know what to do. Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that. And I agree, although it can be tough. And so I've been on the Practical Diversity and Inclusion website because I recognize it's so tough to work in advocating in this space or in any other kind of policy space. The winds are so small in comparison to say something that's operational that you can build you can show someone these wins these changing of minds are so small that it's easy to emotionally I use the term emotional energy it's it's easy to lose a lot of emotional energy and go to empty and that's where people would usually call burnout and so I've been putting some things on the website now where I have these little nice pictures and a reminder to myself to you know be kind, be gentle, focus on your long-term goals. You know, these sort of little things that I'm doing there because I know that it helps me. It's like a coping mechanism for me and it might help other people as well. So you're talking about being involved with the research software engineering community. So just to kind of step back to the basics of your background, do you consider yourself a research software engineer? Are you an advocate? What does the role mean for you and how did you stumble on it? I don't know if I'm a research software engineer, but a lot of people have told me I'm not certain things in my time. So it's difficult to tell if that's because they don't see me like that or they or their definition is different. How I came to be a research software engineer was I was applying for a job, and this is actually quite consistent for me. I applied for a job, I didn't get it, but they said, look, there's this other job going that we haven't advertised for yet, which was for doing genomics. Well, it's actually transcriptomics. It was a microarrays at um, a university in Australia, Griffith University. Now, would you like to do that? And I said, oh, that sounded pretty cool. That was the beginning of a project called Stemformatics. And I was on that project for about eight years. And so I started off as they hired me as a web developer, but very quickly I ended up being the project manager, the team leader, and navigated through about eight years with them. I was working from 2010 to 2018 in Stemformatics. And that was basically like a web-based pocket dictionary for stem cell biologists to be able to benchmark their data sets against public data sets. And uh, I found that really interesting and I really enjoyed being able to use a lot of my skill sets. And usually when I had worked in industry beforehand as a software engineer or when I ran my own business doing computer support, within a very short time, maybe two or three years working with clients, I'd be able to understand the business sort of inside out. I'd have a very good understanding of that. I picked those th- things up really quickly, which I think actually is how I would define one definition of what a research software engineer would be compared to a normal software engineer, being able to pick up the domain and be able to be comfortable talking with different people within a domain that's ex- inherently complex or complicated. I come into this role of Stemformatics and I thought I'm going to learn it like I learned the other roles and I realized I couldn't. Biology is just massive. And I found that out really quickly because 
in our lab, because this is a sort of a lab-based project, we had immunologists and stem cell biologists um, not really understanding each other's work to the nth degree. They'd understand it to a certain level, but they might, if someone was presenting 20 slides, they might get up to like slide 15, slide 14. I get up to slide two, right? They'd have an introduction slide and we go, okay, that's it. And for the rest of the time, I was just writing notes about uh, what does this mean? What does this mean? And I'm trying to do it that way. So what I found with research was I had to rely on experts to explain it to me in a way that I can understand so that I can streamline their processes to make it easier for them to do their jobs. That was sort of my introduction to research software engineering. And since then, I've been working in the strategic side of things where I'm probably working alongside research software engineers. I've established two or three research software engineering groups, more or less, been part of that. And I sort of joined, again, the Research Software Engineering Committee for Australia and New Zealand this year because I felt that I could help from a strategic point of view. Whether I'm a research software engineer at the moment, yeah, I don't think I am anymore. But we had an interesting chat around career progression where someone who's a research software engineer and is a, because you have to kind of be a generalist, I think, in some areas in terms of being good at the software and being able to understand the biology, you're more likely to be able to easily move into management if you have that mentality or you have you enjoy being able to work with people and bring groups together. I think I've gone down that path, if that makes sense. You're talking about a dimension of being a research software engineer and other roles too, I suspect, that comes down to this intuition and communication and connecting people. And I think we should stress how important those functions are, even if they aren't like stereotypically a research software engineer, like banging on some code. It kind of also from, you know, knowing a little bit of your background, it seems like it's your superpower. On a high level, can you tell us what it means to connect people? And if you kind of look at our community as a network or a series of connections, what are we doing well and what are we just totally failing at? I think it is because I do enjoy understanding what other people are doing. And I did that in my very first job. I'd be hanging out with anyone from database admins to trainers to admin staff, just trying to understand how they fit and what their challenges are. And, and the thing that I found as I started to work more in the strategic space, it's very easy to build relationships when you have an advocacy-based approach. It sort of weaves in together with the diversity and inclusion. Diversity and inclusion for me is highlighting the challenges that people face that aren't necessarily making those strategic decisions, aren't making those boardroom decisions, and bring their voice, their perspectives, their, their challenges, their needs into those meetings to have them represented. Because I don't think we do that very well, just generally in our society. And I think that's really my, my superpower, for lack of a better word, because I can understand how people might react because I'm not just trying to answer, okay, you, you need to fix this software. Um, I'm going to help you fix this software. Here, the software is fixed. I usually say, why do you need the software? How does it work? Where does it fit in? Why are you using this particular software? I'm trying to get an understanding of where they've come from so that I can try to pretend to be the client or pretend to be the researcher in some areas to narrow down my problem space. So I've got a better understanding of how, what options they might be interested in. In terms of research software engineering, what are we doing well? I think 
the community's done a great job of becoming international. I like some of the chatter that I've seen where even though there's a strong US, UK, Australia kind of connection, or I see it from my side of the Australia one, we're starting to reach out to other places that are in Australia anyway, we haven't really connected with, so Asia, Africa, and South America. And so when Malvika sort of reached out to me for this research software engineering, I forgot what was it, missing narratives approaching me, had such a wide range of people in a wide range of countries. So I thought it was fantastic. I really, really enjoyed that. And it was just great having everyone in the room, being able to have that sort of discourse. In terms of what we do badly, the thing that I find when I talk to research software engineers and researchers even likely is we tend to not understand what everyone else is doing and we tend to reinvent the wheel. And it's kind of challenging, I think, because of the nature of the work and the nature of the way that we are paid. A lot of it is sort of short-term contracts. We've got this project, we need to be able to get it done. And there's no real time to understand what other people have engineered and how much we can reuse and the challenges of reuse. So one of the big challenges that I think why well, I haven't seen much in terms of debate in the research software engineering community, and this is more with my research software engineering hat on, is maintainability of code. When I do code reviews, for me, it's more about, hey, will I be able to understand this person's code in six months? Do I have a high-level view of what that code should look like? Does this match what that high-level view was? Will it make sense to someone else? And that's where I think having student interns come in to review code is beneficial because you have this naive person coming in and reviewing how maintainable your code really is. And I think building software so that it can be more reusable is something that we do badly, but I think it's kind of a, the nature of the environment as well. So if you change the environment, maybe we'll change that. Do you think that reusability and collaboration across different groups is something that's done better in industry or open source? And is there something we can learn from that or maybe interacting with them? Should we even? This is something I think about a lot, how different it is in industry. And, and obviously there's many differences, but I feel like there's things that they do much better than us. I don't know why we can't be more like that. I think the other thing that we don't do well from what I can gather and this just might be because I'm out of touch, is I don't think we have a strong connection to industry, at least from what I've seen in Australia. The touches to industry are quite light. But in terms of collaborating, again, I think it's just the environment because when you have a deadline to do something, as a software architect, whenever you're starting a new project, your first question is, do I build it myself or do I grab something from someone else and build on top of it? And the challenge that you have all the time is, well, if I build it myself, it'll take longer, but I'll have more control. The second one is, well, I'll be able to have a bit of a head start, but if I want something specific, I might run into a dead end. And sometimes you never know. So I think if you're a, a software engineer who overthinks it, for the first six months of any project, you're just going to be freaking out because you don't know which way you maybe should have done it the other way. And so I tend to try and look at a hybrid approach where I'm trying to work out what are some low-level tools that I know won't hinder me in the future, but could be a really good base for me to start on at this point in time? 
And I think that's where a lot of research software engineers start their decision-making. What framework can I use to get me up to speed really quickly and, and work forward unless there's some sort of industry standard that I can use as a starting point? In terms of working with industry, one of the things I'd like to do as part of the committee First Australia New Zealand is to reach out to industry more and have more of those conversations because I think that it would be nice to see it from their angle as well and to share more. I totally agree. And I have a little bit of experience. So back when I was at my previous institution, there was a big open source project that a big tech company had interest in integrating into their APIs. So they went to the lead developer and they arranged that they would hire a contractor. I saw the ad. I wound up trying to negotiate the contract from my employer. It was successful, but it took nine months just to get the legal paperwork through all these avenues. And I looked at it after the fact, you know, and it was an incredibly fun project. I absolutely loved working with the company, but looking at it after the fact, I said, oh my goodness, like this was impossible. And everything was lined up incentive wise and skill wise, but it still took nine months. And there were so many barriers that, you know, amazingly I was able to get through. It seems like there's too many intellectual property, like paperwork barriers, I, I suppose I would call them. If you can do work to start to break down some of these boundaries and, and establish pathways to make that easier, oh my goodness, that would be the most amazing thing. Because I, I feel like if we could better work with industry, we would be sort of on the same page in terms of best practices and technologies and even like the open source projects we're excited about. And I feel like we would make so much progress faster than we're doing now, sort of existing in this silo. When you mentioned that, I can't remember where it was, but there was a, there's something here in Australia, I think, I don't know if it's at the national level, about trying to streamline IP agreements between universities and industry. And I think that is a really big barrier just because of the litigious nature here in Australia. There's another point that I wanted to make as well. When I, I like working with student interns, when I hear their experiences of going for industry jobs, it seems kind of, I don't know if the term is meat grinder kind of thing where, you know, they have to do a coding test and these other things. And the way I explain to students, especially when they're starting out, is a master's student. I'd say you need to work in a place where you're not just a typing coding you know you need to be in a place where you're thinking about the design and if they're asking you to do a coding test and that's the more important than how well you think it's the wrong place for you to start your career I would say because to be a senior research software engineer or a senior software engineer it's about how can you break a problem down how can you think about the solutions it's not about how fast you can do a for loop in Java or Python or R or whatever. I think that's the challenge I see with industry is they'll go, oh, you're great, Roland. You've got all these skills. Oh, hang on. Do you know Azure? Oh, no, no. I only know AWS and OpenStack. And oh, no, then you would be terrible for this job. We can't go further. And it's just a lot of box ticking in industry from what I've seen. And the good companies are the ones that actually value you for your ability to think, not for your ability to type four loops fast, in my opinion. I definitely also have issue with these interview processes where you are asked to do something that you'd never have to do in your daily job if you work there. And I also sympathize, though, with 
the fact that they have to have some kind of structured process to narrow down all the applicants. That said, I wish it were different and I wish it kind of emphasized the way that people think and creativity and took into account the fact that people are very different. That kind of interview process selects for a very specific kind of person that is able to go and, for example, perform on a whiteboard and maybe doesn't get anxiety when they're doing that. And someone who also has the time and the privilege to spend months, you know, studying algorithms just for this interview. So I have a lot of issues with that process too, as I suspect many people do. And probably the companies are thinking about it, but they just don't have a better way at this point. So one of the things I look at if I'm hiring is learnability. How fast do people learn? What I've found is that industry looks at it from an opposite point of view. How many years of experience do you have in such and such? Okay, yep, you've got more experience in this one. Okay, we're going to pick that out. I actually tend to do it the opposite way. I tend to go, hey, look, I've seen you've done a bit of Java, PHP, you've done this, you've done a lot of different roles. Hey, I think it'd be really great, especially for something like research software engineering, because it seems that you can pick up things very, very quickly. You know, we might be working, if you know, 10 years ago, eight years ago, Angular 1 was all the rage. Oh, look, you need Angular 1. That's the only thing we need. Oh, no, there's Angular 2. Oh, it's completely different to Angular 1. Oh, oh sorry, it takes you like five years to learn a new language. Oh, we're stuck with you as, as an Angular 1 programmer. It doesn't allow an organization to stay flexible with all the new technology that's in vogue. And so when you're hiring for the future, and I've got a presentation about this, is that you need to hire for things like learnability, critical thinking, tolerance for ambiguity, tolerance for complexity. Are you collaborative by default? These are all things that I think are actually the criteria that I would look at for a research software engineer over just that technical side. I think the way that industry does it almost selects for the opposite of that, but maybe, you know, they do just want to put someone into a role where they perform one function. It's a different set of choices. And it, it's funny you bring up all the frameworks because yeah, you know, especially with JavaScript, it's like, no, you know, not Angular or Angular 2, or we're now doing Vue.js. Oh no, now React. And oh, have you heard of Elm? It's a new functional. Like to be a good RSE, you have to just be good at exactly what you said having ambiguity and being like thrown into a pit with like a problem monster to fight or to solve and to be scrappy and to come up with something given what you have and even given a lot of uncertainty. It's interesting. I've seen a lot of cases where people have a hard time making decisions under uncertainty. And I've watched some people progress in their careers that as they grow, they get better at making those decisions and just being comfortable with existing in an uncertainty pit. Like that, that, that is like the world that we live in. That's right. And that's why I say to the students, be a software engineer, don't be a software developer. And then software developer is more about, hey, look, I've, I've got to learn Vue, I've got to learn React because that's how I'm going to get my next job. If you ask me to code one plus one equals five, I'm going to code that. I'm going to code that really fast. I'm not going to tell you that it's wrong, but I'm just going to be able to call it code it fast. A software engineer is like, I'm not really worried about the tools. I've got some tools in my tool set. And if I haven't used your tools, I'll figure it out. But hang on, I thought you said one plus one equals two. And I'm not sure if I should do this one plus one equals five. Can we just clarify that, please? And I think that's the difference between a software engineer and a software developer. I say to students, you want to be a software engineer because they're going to get paid more in your career as you go forward. Don't be a software developer, be a software engineer. So one facet that I think also would differ between an industry versus an academic research software engineer is this idea of merit. 
in industry, you can imagine you're just like a cog in a machine and you do what you're told and you probably don't get much credit for what you do, maybe from your manager. And an idea that I've seen commonly in your talks is just this idea of redefining merit. And I think in our communities, we have this very structured definition. It has to do with citations and papers and maybe what your institution, like the title that they give you. How can we rethink this idea? Can you tell us about your idea of redefining merit? For me, redefining merit comes from, and I meet people, I tend to just get an understanding of who they are, what they're good at, just in case I need to ask them a question later on. And more and more of it, as I've been working with diversity and inclusion, I've realized that people have different challenges along the way to get where they're going. So when I started looking at this, I started to want to say, if you belong to more than one marginalized group, you probably have a higher degree of difficulty. So for example, as a man of color, I have more privilege than someone who is a woman of color who has a disability. When I'm looking at people nowadays, when I'm talking to people nowadays, or when I'm looking at a resume nowadays, and I'm, I'm seeing who they are and, and what kind of background they have, I rate what someone does a little bit higher if they have a higher degree of difficulty, if they belong to more than one marginalized group. And I think that is something that, especially in the leadership in Australia, we don't take into account. And so this is why we have this huge lack of diversity in Australia, especially in the higher levels of the universities here and in some of the uh, research institutions where you have just a lack of racial diversity completely. From a research software engineering point of view, when I'm looking at hiring on merit, that's what I'm really thinking about as opposed to retaining, I'm thinking about recruitment. I go back to this idea of can this person, do they have these, what I call continuous improvement skills, these six continuous improvement skills, and do they have some technical background as well? And I, I find that when I'm working with student interns, again, I, I enjoy working with students, I'm really just seeing how fast they learn how often they ask questions. And actually, for me, I find when someone's bold enough to ask a question after a panel or a presentation, I can guess one of two things. Either they are currently a senior person or in a, you know, a lab head, or they're going to be a lab head, or they're going to have a higher level position in the future. Because I can see that leadership where a lot of people will be unwilling to ask a question because they might feel embarrassed or they might think that they didn't understand the content. Whereas someone who doesn't understand the content and wants to seek clarification might ask a question to help them clarify it and they're not worried about it. Those people will be able to learn faster than the people who are unwilling to ask that question. And I can actually close my eyes. This is pre-COVID. Pre I can close my eyes and work out who are the group leaders in the room because they're the ones usually asking the questions after a presentation, like a, a research presentation. And one lady, I remember this is the first research software engineering mini conference in 2019. And there was a lady at our table. Hi, Kiowa. And I was going, wow, she's asking a lot of questions. Wow, she must be like a senior RSE. Turns out she was an undergrad. And I'm here going, oh my goodness. The leadership ability that she's showing so early on is just amazing. Now, this is how I redefine merit. And when you redefine that, all of a sudden you go from saying, oh, look, it's really difficult to find technical people, can't really fill what we're looking for. You go from that kind of perspective to, oh my goodness, there's so much talent out there. 
because you're looking at a different set of merit. You're not looking at how many years of experience, how many did, how did you do this, how did you do that. It's about how willing they are to be able to speak up, how willing they are to learn, how they can face those challenges. And I think I always shake my head when I'm hearing just recently about, you know, it's really difficult to find talent. We have to charge more. And I'm hearing people saying, hey, I've got a lot of talent. I've got a lot of this. I've got a lot of that. But no one's giving me an opportunity because they're not looking at the right way. So I find there's just this huge disconnect from what employers are saying and what potential employees are saying. And I find that frustrating yet hilarious somehow. That's really interesting. And I absolutely love that story. And I would even say maybe you can learn that ability over time. You know, when I started in graduate school, I did not ask questions. I was quiet. And I think what started to happen is I saw my fellow students around me, usually in an older year, just being so bold and comfortable and and raising their hand and speaking their mind. And I kind of looked at that and I was like, this seems to be working for them. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting here all quiet and this isn't really working for me. So I'm going to just fake confidence for a while and, and start asking questions. And it's amazing how it happened because when you start to just put yourself through that behavior and doing that over time, it becomes a real thing. Like you're not pretending that you're confident. You actually are raising your hand and you're relaxed and you're asking a question like that. So I have a question about diversity. How would you see the difference between diversity that you can physically see versus diversity that you can't see? And which do you think is more challenging for a person? I think it's easier to make quick assumptions about things. And if it's something that you can see, I think the key to understanding what a person is going through is you have to center marginalized perspectives you have to center marginalized discourse and even before i came on the podcast today i saw something on twitter where someone was saying hey it's not when a disabled person has uh, needs they're human needs and you shouldn't call them special needs or extra needs they're human needs and someone met later down down the twitter thread said look i like to call them specific needs because they're specific needs for this person and If you center marginalized perspectives, when you center that discourse for people who are intersectionally marginalized, belong to more than one marginalized group, and you focus on the people who are the most highly marginalized because of the number of groups that they belong to, when you start to center that in your social media, because you can't do that in the media, but if we could do it in the mainstream media, it'd be great. Once you center that, all of a sudden these conversations become a lot easier. You'll know that generally there's going to be something there that you might not know. And if someone calls you out on it, you go, hey, look, thank you for telling me. Sorry, thank you for telling me. And you know how to react. When I do my diversity and inclusion presentation, I try to explain when people are asking questions later on, it's how you react to understanding and to being shown these new perspectives. It's how you react. If you're hostile, if you're negative, if you're defensive, if you're just going to ignore it, if you just try and move on, then I will start to work out where you sit on the spectrum of whether you're going to help or not around diversity and inclusion. If you go, oh, wow, I didn't know that. I'm really sorry. And you feel bad. And, you know, that can, that can happen. But it's like, okay, you know, I'm going to use this as a learning experience. That's sort of 
the target people that I'm looking for because if someone's coming to me and my claim to fame is I did a presentation they were going to put the presentation up on a university in the United States and someone complained about it because apparently they couldn't sleep at night after they listened to my presentation and they took it off the university's website and you know I wouldn't be able to get through to that person no matter what I did. I feel proud about doing that, by the way. I'm not sure if I should, but I feel proud about that because it meant that the way that I was speaking had an impact on that person. Now, how they reacted was individual to them, and that's how they reacted. I can't really do anything about that, but at least I got the message home. And so looking at, you know, whether it's public or you can see it or you can't, a lot of people just don't know that these things even exist. They don't understand the idea that being a part of a marginalized group is almost like having carrying an extra 20 kilos of weight in your backpack on a marathon. And that every time someone you encounter microaggression, it's another two kilos on the backpack. And that can actually wear you down faster than someone else. It's not a level playing field. Going back to your idea around diversity, about around redefining merit, it's not a level playing field. So when you're looking at someone's experience or accomplishments in their resume, that could be based on the opportunities they've had, not on their ability. If you take that into account, then you'll be one step closer to trying to hire on merit. It has me thinking of so many things. Like firstly, I think all the time, just how much of this is just invisible. And so me not knowing, I think about how can I make our slacks or the places where we communicate feel like a safe space where people feel okay talking about things they're interested in or how they're different or just expressing what they need. And it's also interesting you brought up that up because if I look back on my own life, I feel like so much of the person that I turned into was defined by facing some adversity and then learning from it. And it's interesting because I see people that are at sort of the same age as me or the same spot in their career and they're just totally missing these perspectives. But then if I also kind of go back in time, I can imagine so many stories of my own life of how it could have turned out differently, where different points where I would have stopped or, or given up. I think that I've had a lot of privilege too. So I can't even imagine that, that spectrum of adversity, how much harder, as you, you put it quite nicely, that you're, you know, you're running the same race with a rucksack with like 50 pounds on it. it. It's definitely not an equal playing field. The idea as well is, I want to tell the story where your privilege depends on, it's very contextual, it depends on the situation. So I think it was probably... February 2019, I was talking with some people who, uh, they were born in India, they were uh, working in, in Australia. We had these really terrible bushfires and the smoke was coming in to the cities and people were trying to wear masks and everything else like that. And I remember talking to two people independently who had backgrounds in, in India and their comment was, well, no, we faced this kind of thing in India and, you know, it didn't sort of affect, we we're sort of used to it. And I sort of said, well, is that true though? Because you have to understand is that Australia has a very core migrant policy that either you're a skilled worker who's going to work for, for peanuts that we can exploit you, or you have a lot of money and you can afford to pay your way into a visa to a certain extent. So when I'm working with people like this, I'm fairly confident they've come from a privileged background in, when they've come from different places, external places. And I sort of said, well, if you had a kid and you weren't well off in India and they had asthma, 
you know, they might struggle because they won't be able to look after their, their kids' health. Wouldn't that be the case? And, and, the, and the person said, yeah, you know, that's, that's a good point. And I think it just demonstrated that they had privilege back in India, but when they came to Australia, they were actually challenged with issues around racism and getting a fair go and everything like that. And they can just change and be contextual in any given time. And I think the thing that, I don't know if it annoys the right word, I don't know if frustrates the right word, the thing that really gets me about diversity and inclusion is that a lot of the times it's very superficial. It's very superficial. It's like if you remember this prescriptive rule, then you'll be okay for this thing. And, and then someone goes, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll learn about gender equity and we'll do these things. Well, well then why is this person complaining to me about uh, we, we don't, we've got too many white people in the, in the leadership of the organization? I'm trying to do my best in gender equity. Why, why are you having, giving me a hard time? I can't learn everything. And I think that causes such a problem in general. And the way that I try to explain it is, hey, this is complicated. It is not straightforward. It is not something that you can go through. You need a framework to understand. And this is where I talk about this idea of a degree of difficulty. And if you belong to more than one marginalized groups, you face a higher degree of difficulty. If you have that kind of perspective, then you can start to prioritize like a hospital who needs to be looked after first like a hospital you triage the people who need the most help first but what actually happens in most organizations i've seen i've been part of we actually help the people who are the most privileged first so athena swan i think maybe it was a few years ago now they kept on getting challenged because what they were doing is instead of helping women they were helping white women people were feeling left out and if you don't go from an intersectional point of view and you look across all the complexity that is there and you don't help people who are more marginalized first, you're always going to have these challenges of leaving people behind. And another example that, gosh, just was brought up today is that when you have an organization that's making sort of DEI efforts and they're focusing on, oh, let's make programs in colleges and graduate schools, I always kind of want to step back and be like, look, there are people that are going through college that don't have the luxury to think about, oh, what am I going to choose for my career? Because maybe they're working full time. Maybe they're going through some kind of medical adversity and they're like, I just want to survive that thing. So even just coming up with these programs is still biased and selecting for not everyone. It's such a big problem because there is such a spectrum, as, as you said. Yeah, and that's why I've been in the strategic space. I've been sort of merging some of the ideas around diversity and inclusion that I have into the strategic space. So what I want to do now is, or what I do now is I'll advocate for people who don't have a voice at the table. And I'll go around and talk to people that I know won't be making those decisions when the, the doors are closed. And I'll try to understand their perspectives and I'll write that down. I will take their comments, I'll make them generic, and then I'll start to pull those, those generic comments together and say, look, this is the pattern that I'm seeing. And so if I'm lucky enough to be as part of those closed door considerations, I'll be flagging, hey, if we're going to build something that works for everyone, you need to take this into account. You need to take that into account. It's very much a person-centered, a human-centered approach, but it's actually weighted towards the people who have the most challenges accessing normal programs. So by actually designing it that way, 
you'll know that the people, if if you're looking after the people who are highly marginalized, everyone else will benefit because they'll be able to access access those things as well. So Roland, we're actually coming up on time. I have so many more things I want to ask you, but I'll try to limit it just to two. <laughs> what pieces of advice would you give someone that wants to be a leader in the space that maybe wants to start a group or wants to step back and take more into account this intersectionality perspective? What are some like just direct things that they can do? I think the first thing is to understand about the backpack analogy and to understand that you need to work out when you're talking to people where they sit in terms of that degree of difficulty and make assumptions that things might have been more challenging now that's at a general level and as you talk to a person you might reveal more things that you didn't know this is what you're talking about with the hidden challenges and that's the first thing that comes into account you need to understand that it's not a level playing field the second thing i would say is you'll need to understand where your privilege is and how you can sacrifice that privilege to help others. So a great example, I love talking, you probably noticed. And I had an opportunity to talk at the Linux Australia conference, but instead of doing that, I wanted my senior research software engineer to go um, so that she could have that opportunity to, to present and to be recorded and to meet people. And so instead of me going, uh, she went. And we do that with our students as well. So it might be that, hey, look, I'm doing this presentation. I'm supposed to be leading this, you know, organization around changing things about research software engineering for the better. But you know what? Do, are you the person that needs to actually do this? Can you bring someone else to open up those opportunities so that you're not the one always taking those opportunities? Can you bring someone along who could do just as good a job and build up their networks as well? So now you've got two people who can reach out to their networks to make those changes. That's probably the core thing, because in order to balance things out and to make things equitable, we need to give people from marginalized groups more opportunities to make up for the ones that they've lost, because they've, they've lost things in the past. Even before they're born, they've lost opportunities. And in the future, they're going to lose opportunities because they're going to be marginalized. And it's our job for people who want to be allies or accomplices or whatever you call it, to be able to give those people those opportunities to make up for the ones that they've lost. I love that. It's our job to look around us and have awareness of the people around us and to lift them up. I absolutely love that. So final question to kind of spin it back to you a little bit. When you aren't using your superpowers, what do you like to do? Like I said, I can't not do this. Like 90% of my time is thinking about this in one way, shape or form. Although I do like watching football, association football, world football. So I think that probably is the, the other thing that I like to do. So to be the um, naive American, when you say football, do you mean American football? Or are you talking about soccer in Australia? What does football mean? Is it the one where you're throwing? Oh, uh, <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I talk about in a world context. So uh, you would call it soccer and most Australians would call it soccer. Okay, fantastic. No, I had to clarify that because. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. <laughs> So Roland, it has been such a pleasure having you on RSC Stories. I was just so inspired by seeing your talks and your ideas and 
I hope that I get to see more. I, I hope that you're active. I, I know you're in Australia, but I hope that you're active in sort of the USRC space too, because your ideas are powerful and I want you to, to share them. I want to listen to them. I want to be a part of what you're doing. So please continue engaging uh, with us over in the, the USRC channel. Thanks, Vanessa. Thanks for having me. Thanks.